Hi, I'm William Chamberlain of Popular Materials Department with an interview with novelist and screenwriter Charlie Haas. Mr. Haas has written screenplays for Tex, Gremlins 2, Matinee, and Over the Edge. Over the Edge will be playing at the Downtown Public Library on November 20th at 2 p.m. Now, on to the interview. There is one follow-up question that I'd like to ask about Over the Edge. Um, Jonathan Kaplan said in the audio commentary you wrote a great script and that you did more than writers usually do, you and Mr. Tim Hunter. Could you give more detail of what you did that writers usually do? Oh, yeah. Uh, (laughs) Tim and I did a lot of stuff to take up the slack because this movie was extremely inexpensively made, to put it kindly. It was a very low-budget picture. Uh, everyone was under a lot of pressure to pull it together, you know, on this budget and on this schedule. It was a very tight, short shooting schedule. So the casting of the five lead kids was done in New York, and a few of them, uh, Vinnie Spano and Pamela Ludwig, I think, came out of the cast of an off-Broadway show called Runaways that Liz Suedos had done. But Matt Dillon, they actually, you know, really did discover in the great Lana Turner tradition, hanging around at his junior high school and just kind of looking the part of Richie White. But Tim and I, we kind of pitched in and did the ensemble casting because there just wasn't money for that. So we were both living in L.A. at the time, and we just got in our cars and drove back and forth to the Denver area several times. And we, we rounded up those 40 or 50 kids who, who are the ensemble kids, and there are some very nice little you know, performances in there. And we also kind of basically were their camp counselors all that summer because, you know, we, this, was, this was the summer vacation for those kids was being in this movie. And Tim and I, you know, got them on the bus every day and got, got them home every night and broke up a couple of fights. And, you know, we were really sort of the, the, the den mothers of this, of this bunch of, you know, 14-year-old stoner kids who, who we became quite fond of. And I know Jonathan has kept in touch with some of them over the years, and they're some pretty good kids, actually. But, yeah, Tim and I, uh, we did our part. We pitched in on this movie. You mentioned this briefly in the introduction, but Tim Hunter was your teacher at the University of California at Santa Cruz. And what was the classes you took, and how did you develop into becoming writing partners? Tim was teaching. Tim had been to Harvard, where he had run the Harvard Film Society, and then he had been to grad school at the American Film Institute. And he came to California to be the lecturer in film history. So he taught, you know, your basic film history classes, Hitchcock, Howard Hawks and John Ford, tearjerkers, film noir, westerns, uh, all those genres, uh, animation. He had Chuck Jones come up and speak. And he, you know, he he just ran these movies at 9 in the morning, and, and you'd go see them, and he'd give these lectures basically from a sort of auteurist criticism point of view. And it was a real, it was just a wonderful crash course in film history for, you know, for, for us students. I had had no thought of studying film in college. I was there to take creative writing classes and learn about, you know, fiction writing, which was, which was what I thought I'd be doing. But I was in a bunch of Tim's classes, and we became friends. And at a certain point, he said, you want to try and write something together? And I, I said, sure. I knew absolutely nothing about screenwriting, but Tim knew about it, having had that, that film school education. And I think there was a front-page story in the San Francisco Examiner about the situation in Foster City, and it was, you know, this great lurid headline. It was, Mouse Packs, Kids on a Crime Spree. And Tim comes over to my house and shows me this article and says, you know, this could be an exploitation picture, and we could write it. And we did, and it was a lot of fun. I had never attempted screenwriting before, and he, he really taught it to me. And 
some people listening, I think, will recognize Tim's name because he's directed a bunch of very good movies, um, mo- most notably uh, River's Edge, but, but a lot of stuff. Uh, after Over the Edge, you and Tim Hunter collaborated on text based on S.E. Hinton's novel, and uh, how did that project come about? You know, Tim, again, this was, this was you know, Tim is a very smart guy and very talented. He uh, spotted that book, and he thought that this would be a good adaptation. He thought we could probably, you know, manage to get Matt Dillon into it. Matt, having done Over the Edge first, and then My Bodyguard, you know, was just starting to become a bit of a movie star. And Susie Hinton, I think, is best known for writing The Outsiders, but, you know, Tex was another of her books, and... Tim just thought this was a good project for us, and of course, the enterprise of, of adapting Susie's books and casting Matt in them was continued then by Francis Coppola because he made both The Outsiders and Rumblefish back to back with Matt in the cast. But we, we we got there first. It was a lot of fun doing that picture. We did it uh, in Tulsa, where Susie lives and where she had set it, and she kind of was looking over our shoulders and. She was a great help to us. And she has a small part in the uh, movie. And did she like the adaptation of the novel that she did? She, she was very happy with it. And I remember her saying, I guess in an interview or publicity or somewhere, she said that she could no longer remember which dialogue was hers and which we had written. And that, of course, you know, thrilled us because she's an awfully good writer. So we were very happy to have her say that. After Tex, you wrote a movie for Showtime called Reckless Disregard, which is about a libel case against an investigative reporter. And I'm curious, was this inspired on an actual court case? There were a couple of things going on at the time that we drew on or that we touched on, but basically it was just an impulse that the producer had. It was a guy named Mark Tarlov was the producer, and you know it was his idea and I basically just wrote from his idea. You also wrote a script of Martians Go Home, which was based on a novel by uh, Frederick Brown. Are you a fan of Frederick Brown's work? I am. I am. I always was. But again, that was not, that project was not my idea. That was the director, a guy named David O'Dell. At the end of text, the credits read post-production consultant Joe Dante. Was this the first time you ever met Joe Dante? Oh, my gosh. I, <laughs> I forgot this. It probably was around that time that I met him. I think that I met Joe and his producing partner, Mike Finnell, at some point in there, soon after coming to L.A. When I graduated from Santa Cruz in 1974, uh, I moved to L.A., and Tim moved down there also. We both had day jobs. I worked in the music business, and Tim was doing TV publicity uh, while we were trying to get started as, as screenwriters. And there was sort of a loose group of people in Hollywood who were all veterans of working for the legendary Roger Corman, uh, who was at New World Pictures. And that included Jonathan Kaplan, who directed Over the Edge. It included Joe Dante and Mike Finnell and their pal Alan Arkish. And, you know, if, if, if you look at um, the history of Roger Corman in New World, he started so many directors' careers including Francis Coppola, you know, just a lot of famous people, made their first movie, which would have been some sort of cheap exploitation picture for Roger. And so there was a sort of loose, you know, assortment of of guys who hung out together, mostly guys, some gals, in Hollywood who were sort of veterans or survivors of Roger Corman. And I I, I, I think... through Tim knowing Jonathan and Jonathan having been, you know, I, I, I met Joe and Mike around that time, but this was quite a while before I would work for them. 
going on to Gremlins too on the audio commentary. Joe Dante wanted an anarchic tone, and he wanted to break a lot of rules. I'm curious, when you were working on the script with uh, Mr. Dante, how did you and Mr. Dante develop a game plan to do this? It was an interesting challenge because they had uh, they had made Gremlins, which came out I think in 1980. It was a big hit. The studio very much wanted a sequel. They had run through a lot of ideas and writers. And it's, it, it's a tough thing to do because you're working with these puppets and you're working with the sort of uh, rules of their existence that Chris Columbus had set up in writing the script for the original movie. And so, you know, they wanted to take it. I, I, I remember Jonathan called me up because he was, he was friends with Joe and Mike. He had run into Joe and he said, how are you doing? And Joe said, oh, you know, we're having such a hard time coming up with a, with a sequel for Gremlins. And Jonathan called me up on the phone, and, you know, one day the phone rings out of the blue, and he said, how would you like to write Gremlins 2? And I just laughed, and I said, you know, I'd love to. So I, I spoke with Mike and Joe, and they said, you know, we, we want to get it out of the small town setting of the first movie. We'd love to take it to a city, but you can't have these puppets running all over the city down the street because it's just impossible to shoot that, you know, with, with all those puppets. So you really have to kind of limit it. So I, I just started thinking about let's go to New York, but let's, you know, keep it in a confined space where there would be enough to do, and I got the idea of having things go wrong in one of these smart buildings where things are not supposed to go wrong and everything is sort of, you know, controlled by computers and so on. And that, I think, gave us a big enough physical arena without having us, you know, running down Fifth Avenue and spending a million dollars a second trying to shoot that with the puppets. There's, there's very little stuff outside, and things like the scene at the cathedral uh, you know, were shot on the lot at Warner Brothers. There was there was very little that we really shot in New York. So it became a kind of contained environment that we could shoot in. But Joe and Mike are, are absolutely wonderful to work with. They are just great improvisers and spitballers of ideas. So I remember going in to see them and having a meeting and saying, you know, my idea is to do this in a smart building. And they just started, um, you know, a mile a minute saying, oh, and there's a cable TV network in the basement. Oh, and it's Donald Trump. All this other stuff that they added on to it. So it was very collaborative. And Joe is just wonderful. And, it, you know, it's, it's funny that we're talking today because Joe and Mike and I did a picture called Matinee later on, which is coming out on DVD just today. I'm talking to you on May 4th. So there's a bunch of stuff on the Internet and Amazon and stuff about that today, which I was just seeing. And... You know, that was another one where collaborating with those two guys was just, it, it, it was so much fun. It was wonderful. Mentioning Matinee, uh, Matinee and, and Runaway Daughters both deal with the nostalgia of the 50s and the 60s, but both films deal with the Cuban Missile Crisis and Sputnik, the paranoia of the age. Yeah. Um, growing up, did these two events have an effect on you? Oh yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm I'm a guy of a certain age, so when I, when the Cuban Missile Crisis happened, I was 10 years old and I was terrified. I think everyone was. People who are old enough to remember this, we really thought we were on the brink of a nuclear war, and, and you know, and you kind of thought that all the time in those days because every day's newspaper had that paranoia. In it. And you would, I remember driving around with my family in New York, and there were fallout shelter lots. They looked like Christmas tree lots, except they had these crazy, uh, you know, concrete cylinders stuck in the ground that you were supposed to buy and you and your family were supposed to go live in there when, there was the, when the nuclear attack happened. So this paranoia was right down the street all the time, and I, I remember it very vividly. 
And as you mentioned, Matt and I, I'm a huge fan of that film. And I'm just curious, how did you come to write the movie? Thank you for saying that. Joe and Mike had originally bought the idea from a writer named Jericho Stone. His idea was essentially, you know, a comedy about a bunch of kids going to a Saturday horror movie matinee. So he had done a, a draft or two. And then a writer named Ed Naha, who is not credited on the picture, did a draft in between. And I believe it was Ed who came up with the wonderful tagline for the movie within a movie, which was uh, Mant. Uh, half man, half ant, all terror. I think I think we owe that to Ed Naha, very talented guy. And then they were sort of we had we had done Gremlins too. We were kind of sitting around in post production, and they gave me that script and said, you know, do you do you think you could do something with this? And I read it and I thought about it and I said, well, I think the kicker here and the way to take this up a notch might be to have a producer who is a William Castle kind of producer who likes to do these effects and gimmicks in the theater. William Castle was a real guy who would do things like put army surplus motors in the seat cushions at the theater when he did the movie The Tingler. And someone would, you know, the projectionist or someone would push a button and people would get a jolt from this <laughs> this army surplus motor at the time that The Tingler was loose in the theater and you know, just, just did these wonderful things. So I said, you know, if you had a guy doing this and it was the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis and everyone was already on edge waiting for the bombs to start falling and people could not tell the, the fake danger in the theater from the real danger that they were worried about outside, you know, you could really have sort of a riff on why we go to monster movies and why we like to be scared when, it, you know, it's something we know is not going to really hurt us and mix that up with the fear that really can hurt you. I, you know, I think we could take this to another another level and joe and mike went for that and we set about developing it and once again it was such a collaborative thing where half the ideas that we that 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 made it into the movie were were just joe and mike sitting around the three of us and and they're coming up with stuff i'd like to ask you about the movie within the movie you mentioned it mant on youtube you can watch that entire movie i was just wondering did you write the movie within the movie too yes and it was, and that was really a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I, I wrote that stuff. And it's so much fun to do that pastiche of that horror genre because, you know, the films are sort of wonderful and awful and glorious and corny. And, and we really went very broad with that and had some really dumb jokes. And it, 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 was, it, was, it was a lot of fun. And I noticed someone, they say that this DVD release is just happening today, and I noticed someone on the uh, internet pointing out that Joe just cast a bunch of his B-movie actor heroes in the kind of roles that they always played in Mant, and, and that made it even more fun because it was great working with those people. And Joe just has a gift for having some wonderful actors from that world in his movies. Gremlins 2, we had Christopher Lee, and it's such a kick to work with those people because they really, they've done a million of those pictures, and they're, they're great people. Well, I was going to ask next about Christopher Lee. You had a small cameo in Gremlins, too. Yeah. And you had it with uh, Christopher Lee. Do you have any special remembrances about working with him? He was wonderful. You know, my, my cameo, I think really, we, you know, it was just a day, so I was only hanging around him for a day. But he, he's, he was a terrific guy, and he was also an opera singer, and I think he was involved in tracking down Nazi war criminals, if I'm not mistaken. He, you know, he, he just had an amazing life. And he was just everything you would hope for, just this, this charming gent and a serious actor and been in all those 
hammer horror movies. He <laughs> was it was wonderful. I, I love being around him. I want to ask about Runaway Daughters. I, that was a film you did for Showtime, correct? Yes. Did you watch the original movie to base it on, or did I haven't seen the original movie? I've seen your version, or did you just go your own way with it? I watched the original. I remember that Joe sent me the original on VHS, and I watched it. The original. It, it's funny because Joe and Mike at that time had an assistant. Uh, named Betty Moss, who had also been Roger Corman's assistant at the time they were making those movies, and I asked her what that was like, and she said, well, it was great because they shot those movies in five days, which meant that there was a wrap party every Friday. (laughs) So she said it was a wonderful job. And when you see the original of Runaway Daughters, it's just this marvelous, incredibly cheap 50s genre picture, juvenile delinquent movie, and they would make these very, very quickly, very cheaply, make two of them pretty short back-to-back so they'd be good for drive-in bookings. And I, I watched the original, and, and after it, I called Joe up, and he said, did you notice the, the, the sort of hidden message in, in, in the way the movie is art directed? And I said, no, what do you mean? He said, well, the runaway daughters, they start out in this city, they run to this other city, they go here, they're in someone's apartment, they're in someone's house, but no matter what they do, they can never get away from that one couch, <laughs> which... Which is true if you watch it. It was just they had, you know, they had these two pieces of furniture and they kept moving them around and making this picture. So, it, yeah, it's a lot of fun. And we diverged from it pretty thoroughly in order to make ours. But this is for a series called Rebel Highway, which was a, a series of remakes all by very good directors, all also very quick and cheap. And they were remakes of the uh, AIP teenage movies. So there was also, I think... Um, you know, reform school girls and the cool and the crazy and all these things. We shot ours in 12 days, which is, you know, not that much longer than the original. And last question, The Enthusiast, your new novel, is about Henry Bay, who writes for various magazines, and you've written for various magazines. Is Henry Bay based on you? Well, a little. I didn't, you know, he writes for these enthusiast specialty magazines like Ice Climbing and Spelunk and Cozy the Magazine of Tea. And I didn't do that. I, I've written for more, more mainstream kind of magazines, Esquire, New West, recently The New Yorker. And I, I never did have that career of, of working for those magazines covering the, the strange hobbies and extreme sports that Henry does. But I did have enough assignments that sent me to strange places and enough encounters with strange people I interviewed that I think I, I think a lot of that rubbed off on that book. Can I ask just one more question? Sure. Joe Dante on the audio commentary said you guys had other projects you two had other projects that you worked on but you couldn't get the financing. I was just curious what were some of the projects you would have liked to have done together? Oh gosh. <laughs> it breaks my heart to talk about it. We have a script called Termite Terrace, which was about the uh, Warner Brothers animators in the days of Looney Tunes, when they, they had it, there was a building called Termite Terrace on the Warner Hollywood lot, and not the Burbank, but the old lot. And they worked over there and did Bugs Bunny and, and, and Roadrunner and all this stuff. And we, we basically sat down with Chuck Jones, who was there in that period, worked with Tex Avery and, and these other guys, <clears throat> and who told us a bunch of great stories. And we worked it up into a story, and we wrote a script which Warner Brothers did not want to make. I think they are very sensitive about this very lucrative franchise they have with, with these characters, and I think they, 
they didn't like mixing that up with a somewhat adult, sometimes dark kind of story, although it was a comedy. So they were not going to make the movie, and then you really can't take it to another studio as you sometimes can because Warner Brothers owns those cartoon characters that the movie is about. So we did not get the picture made. I think it would have been a lot of fun, and yeah, I, I, I don't know that we ever will get it made, but it was, it was a lot of fun working with, with Joe and Mike on it and obviously working with Chuck Jones, who was just a, a, a genius and a, and a treasure. I would like to thank Charlie Haas for taking the time to do the interview. Remember, Saturday, November 20th at 2 p.m. at the Downtown Public Library on 615 Church Street to see the movie Over the Edge.